Hello, everybody. This is Derek Arden, and welcome to Monday Night Live, uh, the Zoom radio show. Today, I've got Andel Singh with me. Andel is a barrister, he's a solicitor, and he's been a good friend of mine because we've been going to Arsenal for a number of years. But uh, we won't talk about football at the moment. We'll talk about the law because uh, I've been interested in the criminal justice system for a number of years. And so it's an absolute delight to have a criminal defence barrister with me today. Welcome, Andel. Thanks so much for joining Monday Night Live. Thank you very much for the welcome, Derek. Andel, tell me a little bit about your background, your mum and dad and uh, uh, all that, uh, a bit of information about that. Okay, so um, mum is originally from Trinidad in the West Indies. And dad is originally, or was originally, from Guyana in South America. <clears throat> they came here in 1962, uh, mum to study medicine and dad to study law. Um, eventually, dad uh, ended up as a qualified barrister. Mum went into teaching and ended up as a, um, a head teacher of a primary school as well as an inspector of schools. Um, I was born in London. Uh, Camden Town, hence the Arsenal connection. Um, and I always, for two reasons really, one because dad was a barrister, I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And two, because I, at a very young age, maybe even 10, had the ability to speak uh, coherently and negotiate with people. Um, and for that reason, I decided that I would uh, go into criminal law, become a barrister uh, and represent people and help people where I can, could. Yeah, no, fantastic. Now we were talking, we've been talking a lot about negotiations, but you said to me, everything you do is a negotiation from the judge, the jury, etc. Can you uh, expand on that a bit? Yeah, sure. So starting at the beginning of the criminal process is where a person is arrested by the police and taken to a police station. And generally speaking, most people who are arrested are going to be interviewed at some stage. Uh, and the first process is for me to negotiate with police officers so that they can give me as much information as they can how much evidence they've got so I can then go to my client and get proper instructions so that's the first negotiation there's then negotiation in relation to whether a person should be charged with anything or released and then there's negotiation in relation to bail then the first port of call is always the magistrate's court by that time you've spoken with your client about what they want to do, whether they're pleading guilty or not guilty. You then negotiate with the prosecution to see uh, whether they would be prepared to reduce charges or drop charges or take pleas to lesser charges. Uh, and then comes the advocacy. The adv adv advocacy in magistrates court is basically an art of persuasion. You're trying to persuade the magistrates to accept that what you're saying is correct. You then move to the Crown Court, pretty much the same in the Crown Court, negotiations with prosecution, counsel, negotiation with uh, co-defending counsel as to how we're going to approach the case, what pleas might be offered, who would be pleading not guilty, whether the prosecution would be prepared to take a guilty plea from two or three defendants and not proceed against two or three defendants. Um, and then you move on to... Um, the judge uh, before the trial starts and if the trial starts you're going to negotiate with the judge about what law what evidence is going to be admissible so again there are discussions about law 
uh, and you put forward your arguments and again persuading the judge to to agree with you um, and then uh, further negotiation with the jury you're at the end of the trial you're literally trying to persuade the jury to accept that what you said is correct so again it's looking at the jury whilst you're addressing them and trying to negotiate your way through what are the difficult parts of the evidence and try to convince them that what you said is correct. So, uh, and with a client as well, um, depending on the state of the evidence, um, you're, you're negotiating with the client whether he would or she would want to plead guilty to the full offence, to a lesser offence, or uh, just take a trial and, and see how it goes. So, yeah, lots of negotiation. It sounds full on and someone's put uh, in the chat box already. They're exhausted by just listening to you, yet alone <laughs> having, having to do it all. Now, a question I've asked you a couple of times and you've given me the answer, Andel, is I can't get my head around how you could defend someone who you know is guilty. How does that work? Right. So um, let's go back to basics and principles. The first thing to remember at all times is that the client gives you instructions, you give the client advice. So you can never instruct a client what to say or what story they should invent for the police. So that's the first two principles. The, the second set of principles is that you must remember at all times that your first duty is to your client to act in their very best interests. But your second duty, um, uh, which almost runs parallel with the first duty, is that you must not mislead the court. So you must never say anything to the court which you do not believe to be true or you know to be false. So the scenario is X comes into the office and says, um, I want to plead not guilty to this matter, but I actually have committed it. So your question then is, well, tell me what you have done. So I'm getting the instructions and then I will advise you as to whether you are guilty of an offence or not. Very quick example. I had a client come in to me saying, I've got to plead guilty to assaulting this person because I punched him in the face. So I said, well, you have to tell me what you did. And he said, well, I was having dinner with my family in a restaurant and this fellow was a bit drunk. and He came over and tried to punch me. But before he punched me, I punched him. So I did punch him, so I'm guilty of the assault. In fact, he could claim self-defense in those circumstances. So you always have to ask the client what their instructions are. Now, if they maintain a position that they are guilty and they give you instructions that they are guilty of the offense, and then they say, but I want you to get me off. I want you to go to court and find me not guilty or get the judge to find jury not to find me not guilty. You cannot represent them because you are misleading the court. And so you have to say to them, go elsewhere. There's a, there's a subtle difference between that and when the strength of the evidence is overwhelming against a client and you say to the client, look, you have so many different difficulties in the presentation of your case that I'm advising you that you will be found guilty and it would be in your best interest to plead guilty. Now that's my advice, it's not my instruction. And so what happens then is the client has a choice. They either follow my advice or they say, no, I want you to present this case, no matter how ridiculous it is, I want you to present this case before the court. So the answer in short is, 
If someone has told you that they are guilty and gives you instructions that they are guilty, you cannot represent them. If, however, you believe that they are guilty because of the strength of evidence, but they maintain that they are innocent, you have to represent them to the best of your ability. You told me a, you told me a story where um, they were pleading not guilty, but clearly they were guilty. I think you said their DNA was all over the machete or something, uh, yeah. something like that. And you were yeah. trying to you were trying to negotiate with your client to plead guilty to get him a lesser sentence because he was mm -hmm. going to be found guilty. Is, is, was that right? Um, yeah, it's sort of right. So, so the situation is that, is that a machete was found with uh, blood on it and they identified where the blood came from and it was an individual who'd been assaulted. They also swabbed it for DNA samples and it came up with uh, my client's DNA samples. So we got to the police station first of all and the first thing I said to him is, look, your DNA is on this machete which has the blood of somebody who's been attacked on it have you got an explanation for me which is totally innocent if you haven't don't say anything if you have got something tell me it now but for whatever do not do not lie to me at this stage so he said he would prefer to exercise his right to remain silent now years ago you could exercise your right to remain silent with no repercussions however for about 20 years now if you exercise your right to remain silent and the case goes to court then the caution says that it may harm your defense if you fail to mention when questioned at the police station something which you later rely on in court so uh, i went through with him how does your dna get on here i'm not i'm not giving you any explanation i'm not saying anything so that he was charged we went to the crown court um, and the only argument I could put forward uh, was, well, his DNA is on there, but you don't know when his DNA was, on, was put on there. You don't know whether it was before the assault, during the assault, or after the assault. Well, of course, the jury didn't hear from him because he didn't give evidence, and they were entitled to hold that against him. And because he didn't give an explanation, he was found guilty. And he that's the sort. Yeah, and he got a harsher sentence than if he had a pleaded guilty. That's on, absolutely right. On that's his that murder, means. isn't it? It's pretty, uh, pretty, uh, you know. Yeah. The, the rule is the, the rule. The, the rule is is that if someone pleads guilty to an offence at the first possible opportunity, so it's guilty plea at court, not at the police station, they are automatically entitled to a third. Reduct third, so thirty-three percent reduction in any sentence that's going to be imposed. So it's a big incentive, and the thirty-three percent reduction can also mean, in some cases, that you move from a higher bracketing of sentencing, so going to prison, to moving to a lower bracketing of sentence, for example, community service or probation. So it's a big incentive for people to plead guilty if they've done something wrong yeah. uh, to have their sentence reduced by a third and indeed in some cases the judge will reduce it by a bit more now i remember we were having a couple of beers celebrating yet another arsenal victory andel and you told me that um, a young guy who was um, in trouble for possessing class a drugs or dealing class a drugs told you andel you need to know that you're a legend in bedford jail 
Is that good being a legend in Bedford Jail or is that bad? Well, the first thing is, is that I didn't know what legend meant. So I had to ask my then 17 year old son, what on earth is a legend in terms of what these people are talking about? So he said, no, dad, it's slang, which we use nowadays to mean that you are really respected and really important. And, and I didn't know, the case was about this fella and his girlfriend, and they were both charged with possession of class A drugs with intent to supply, which would take you to prison immediately. Um, but I managed to keep his girlfriend out of prison and get him a very short period of time in prison um, from what he sh should have got. Uh, and when I went to see him, I always go to see clients uh, at the end of a case just to chat through with them. Can there be an appeal? Do you have any questions, complaints, whatever? And he said to me, he said, you don't realise, do you, that you're a legend in this prison? So I said, well, what on earth do you mean? But he said, just about every single prisoner in this prison, and there's about 800, 900 prisoners in there at the moment, uh, wants you to represent them because of your reputation of doing so well. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's a good thing, <laughs> but it certainly kept me busy. Yeah. Now, you also told me that one Friday afternoon uh, you were on a case and the judge said, um, Mr. Singh, there's 20, you need to read 21,000 pages over the weekend. And uh, I think you told the judge you had a life, but that, that didn't work either. And uh, how on earth does anyone read 21,000 pages? Well, it's, it, it's time and speed reading. Um, and as you become more and more practiced um, in reading material, uh, you do, you are able to do two things. One, read it very quickly, but two, you identify the important parts a lot more quickly. So you can, you can get rid of the preamble and not worry about that and look to the most important parts. So you're looking for information rather than literally reading every single line of every single page. Wow. Wow. But um, I mean, did you then have to discuss it with your client before you actually went into court as well on the Monday? Yeah. Yeah. So he so we got to because he was in custody. He was held in custody before his trial. So I was able to go there on Monday morning and say to the judge, I've read the paperwork that's been given to me, but I need time to speak to my client about it. And he said, yeah, I totally understand that. You can have half a day. Wow. But it was a weekend of having about three hours sleep each night and just ploughing through paperwork. Yeah, I'm missing a big game as well, but we won't talk about yeah. that. You used a word when we talked last week that I hadn't heard. You said, Derek, you can't unhear anything. Mm. What did you mean by that? That's my phrase. Um, and it's something I, I use with clients because they understand it more readily. And what it means is this, if a client says something to you, uh, giving you instructions, you can't pretend that you didn't hear that. You can't say, oh, all right, I'll forget that you said that to me. Once they've said it, it stays with you. Now, of course, they'll make minor mistakes with dates and times and all that sort of stuff. But it becomes very important when you're looking at precise instructions uh, to fit the prosecution evidence. So if they've given me a certain set of instructions on a piece of evidence, and then they come back and change it to something completely different, 
I have to say, why has this changed? What, what has gone on to make this change? Because um, if you don't have a good explanation, you're going to have to go somewhere else and be represented by somebody else. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Now, bearing in mind your background and your mum and dad, um, I understand you had to defend people from the National Front. How did, I they, did. How did they feel about you doing that? Well, it was very strange because the first time I turned up, the, solic the solicitor who instructed me said, look, these lads are racists, um, but they feel it might be it, uh, to their advantage if they had a non-white barrister so that it would look as though they weren't racist. So I went along on the first occasion and I represented one of these lads. Um, and he was over the moon about my representation. He said, that was absolutely brilliant. You're really good. I'm going to recommend you to all my friends. And I then sort of got quite a bit of work um, from members of the National Front. Um, uh, and I think some of them changed. I think some of them realised that racism isn't something that makes any sense. Um, some of them didn't change, of course. Um, but it was a it was a hairy experience because you didn't know what was going to happen after the case or if, the, if if they got a bad result, for example, what how they would react. But um, uh, for at least 90 percent of the time, I got very good results and they were all very happy with it. And you defended some terrorists as well. Yes, I have. Um, back in the day, I defended um, some members of the IRA. Uh, and more recently, I have uh, represented people who are said to have uh, come from ISIS um, and from extreme right-wing groups. Yeah. Wow. That's okay. high-profile stuff. That's, 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 that's big stuff. That's really difficult to do because the security around you is absolutely massive. Because, for example, some of the, some of the literature that uh, these people have access to is actually illegal to be in possession of. Just being in possession of it is a criminal offence. So there's a book which is called The Anarchist's Cookbook. And it, that effectively, it tells you how to make bombs, how to use weapons and so on and so forth. Having possession of that book is an offence in itself, which carries uh, prison. But I had to have it, to read it, to question my client about it. So, um, yeah, you have to have um, a lot of clearance from the government and from the police when you're doing those types of cases. Wow. Wow. So have you ever prosecuted people? I mean, is that is it a particular specialism to be a criminal defence barrister or, you know, can you switch sides of the fence? Yeah, you can do both. And I have prosecuted as well as defended. Um, I... I worked for the Crown Prosecution Service for about 18 months, um, but I preferred defence work, um, which is why I went back and did mainly, did, well, 98% defence work. But you can do both. There are people who do both. Now, I hear um, some of your colleagues moaning that there's no money in this, we don't get paid properly to defend people, etc. Is that just whinging or is that some... Um... Is that uh, genuine uh, being a I think, I think the difficulty is, is that they don't get paid as much as well, legal aid lawyers or lawyers who yeah. practice legal aid work do not get paid the same rates as um, 
tax barristers or maritime barristers or aviation barristers and the like. There's a, there's a massive, massive difference. I think about five years ago, one of the solicitors in the Magic Circle, five firms, um, was the first person to uh, reach a charge out rate of £1,000 per hour. Um, and it's probably gone up since then. Um, whereas uh, typically for a legal aid lawyer, you'd probably work out at about 60 to 90 pounds an hour. Right, right. Okay, okay. But the whinging is because they're not on the same level. Yeah, well, I, you know, I've asked you a few questions. You've been very honest and frank with us. There's one or two questions in the chat box I'll ask you after um, the recordings are finished. But let's okay. see the ones that I can ask you at the moment. And if anyone's got any other questions, put them in the chat box while we're still recording. Um, how often would you be involved at the big beginning, Jill English asks? Would a barrister normally be involved at the arrest stage? No, um, barristers would not normally be arrested, uh, be involved in the arrest stage or the police station. That's a solicitor's job. Um, but as um, I'm a qualified solicitor as well as a barrister, I can go to the police station and represent someone at the police station and literally take them all the way through from police station to magistrates court to crown court to court of appeal, uh, which I have done on occasions. Is that beneficial for you, though? Um, I'm just trying to think. So, uh, yeah, um, I don't it, know. It, the yeah, it, it, what it helps is the client having consistency. So it's like akin to when people have a general practitioner that they prefer to see. Um, once that we have a good rapport, uh, I can say to the client, I can look after you throughout the whole of this process. And provided they're happy with my service, then they continue to use me right, right the way through, which is comforting for them because they, they don't have to repeat the story again to a new solicitor or new barrister. Um, it, it's, they know that I know what their instructions are. Okay. Question from Godfrey. Um, judges, like all of us, have wide-ranging personalities. What that difference does a judge make? And are they well known by you and your colleagues? Um, good question. It's a lot better nowadays because there's a lot more training. When I started in uh, 1987, there were some judges which you just didn't want to go before because they were so rude. There was one at Snaresbrook who took pleasure in trying to make barristers um, cry. Um, there was one um, who was at, in a London Crown Court. Um, his, his name was Anwil, his first name was Anwil, I won't tell you his second name, but his nickname became Animal because he was so vicious. Um, so, so back in when I started, there, there were a number of judges who were well known for their very difficult behaviour in court. Um, I think the, the Judicial Committee, Judicial Appointments Committee, realised that this was going on. Um, and about 15 years ago, they took it into hand. Um, and so judges get proper training now on how to behave in court. Um, and so it's a lot, a lot less nowadays than it was before. Um, and nowadays, judges will even apologise to you if they feel that they've raised their voice at you, um, which never used to happen before. So, yeah, wide ranging, but a lot less so now. I hope that answers the question. Mm. And Nigel from the University of Essex asks, um, 
asked, why are barristers so hostile when cross-examining? Again, um, it depends on your style. I was never hostile when I cross-examined because, um, as we all know, uh, the way to get information that will assist you is to ask politely, to ask kindly, to appear agreeable, to appear reasonable, and that person is more likely to agree with you if you present yourself as a reasonable, agreeable person. So I was never known for a hostile cross-examination. There are barristers who feel that the best way to get information out of people is to, is to shout and scream at them. Um, they will now be told by judges that you can't do that anymore. Um, it's, not, it's not permitted. Um, you have to be polite to a witness. Um, and in some cases nowadays, especially involving children, um, the barrister will be asked to write out the questions that they're going to ask. They're allowed to ask supplementary questions, but that list of questions would be shown to the child before the court hearing. So they're aware of the type of questioning that will be asked. Good, good. And another question, does a case involving an expert witness create additional challenges when presenting the evidence in court? You have to understand what the expert witness is saying. So um, you, have to, you have to understand it so that you're explaining it not only to your client, but to the jury as well. Um, so you have to have a real grasp on the expert witness uh, evidence and boil it down to such a level that you can explain it to people uh, with a vast range of intelligence. Mm. Yeah, you said that to me. What was that bad, sad and glad that you mentioned to me um, last week? Okay, so I've, I've, I've always um, categorised people who commit crimes in, in three ways. Um, you, you've got the sad people who are um, poor, so they go and shoplift. They're drug addicts, so they go and shoplift. Um, they uh, are homeless, so they sleep on the streets and shoplift. So those are the sad cases. Um, the mad cases are the cases that speak for themselves. Those are people who have been diagnosed with mental health illnesses and they have no control over their behaviour because of the mental health illness, and they are treated in a different way in the legal system. Uh, and then there's the bad people, and those are the people who are career criminals, and they go out to specifically commit criminal offences. And those are the people who, um, in my opinion, need the real punishment. And presumably you, um, you're more likely to defend the third type anyway, are you? Yes, they're, they're the ones who come more regularly. Okay, well, we're nearly out of time before we, uh, on the recording, well, but um, um, Jill asks that she did jury service a couple of years ago and there were three defendants and four barristers. Is that, uh, is that usual? Okay, so um, are, are we talking about three defence barristers or are we talking about three defence barristers and a prosecution barrister? I what, think, what, what, so, I so, think we're talking about three defence barristers. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll clarify that in a minute. But. Yeah, well, if I explain, so there would be four barristers usually, one prosecution and three defence barristers. But if one person's case was particularly serious, they might have a Queen's Counsel representing them, and that would be 
but and they would also have a junior barrister, so that would make up the four defence barristers. Great. Okay. And the very last question is that, given from Adam, given you are representing criminals, do you have to vet where you're going to get paid from um, if they are funding your your service? Presumably, everything's not on legal aid. You do some private work as well. Yes. Yes, you have to have um, confirmation of their identity, confirmation of their, of their address, and confirmation of the bank account where the money's coming from. And you have to have that in photostatic form. So you've got photocopies of it on file. So you have to have a passport or a driving license. You have to have utility bills and you have to have a, a bank statement. And um, clearly, uh, like a lot of us that do work for people, uh, uh, and the value has been given when you've done the work. You have to get you get paid up front uh, often, presumably. I always ask for. I, I always used to ask for payment up front. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And now, um, one last tip for every anybody that um, gets into trouble with the law. <laughs> Phone a solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> Give you a ring. Put your number yeah. in the chat box. We're going to yeah. need, need you to get us off. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and El Singh, thanks for joining Monday Night Live. That's been really uh, intriguing and uh, mind-blowing, actually, for all of us. Uh, if, you, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please like it. If you're listening to this on the uh, Negotiators podcast, do please join us live another time. And uh, will you stay on for, for a bit longer? And also, will you um, join us again in a few months' time and tell us a few more stories? Yes, of course. Be my Members pleasure. of Monday Night Live can ask you to give Andel the usual round of applause. Thank you. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Andel.